Book of Daniel, Soul Survivors. What would it be like to lose everything that mattered to you? A wife, husband, children, home, job, reputation, health. This is not just an academic question. Maybe some of you have been there and lost those and things near and dear to you. Or maybe you're there at this moment in time. Dealing with loss at a personal level is so difficult. Now transfer the scale of things from personal to national loss. Think of Syria. The unimaginable loss that there has been in that biblical land over this last number of years. Or Ireland at this present time, or indeed any other country in the world, because of the COVID pandemic, there has been serious loss. Loss of lives, loss of livelihoods. It's been an exceptional time of loss. In the 6th century BC, this kind of national loss happened to the people of God. And the loss was of great magnitude. What did they lose? Well, they lost their political independence. They lost their king. 400 years of the Davidic kingdom was gone. They lost their temple, which was the centre of their national life, of their identity. It was dismantled. And they lost faith. Where was God in all of this catastrophe? The book of Daniel comes out of this setting of loss, national loss, in the experience of exile. It's a unique book in many ways. It's historic, prophetic. It's part wisdom literature, part apocalyptic. Parts of it were written in the ancient Hebrew language and other parts in the ancient language of Aramaic. It's a book of six stories. And the stories are about soul survivors living in exile in a society which was not congenial to God, where belief and loyalty to God was costly. Daniel puts backbone into belief. And the stories help alert us to what is at stake as believers in the same God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The story which opens the book in chapter 1 has three scenes. First in Jerusalem in verses 1 and 2. Second in Babylon at the University College Babylon in verses 3 to 17. And the final section in 3, it's examination time in verses 18 to 21. Scene 1. The setting is Jerusalem in verse 1, which describes the last days of the Davidic dynasty. 400 years are coming to an end. We read Daniel 1 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The year in question is probably 605 BC. Babylon, a superpower of the day, won a decisive battle at Carchemish against another superpower, Egypt. 
And that settled who was going to be top dog in the world. The land of Israel was at the crossroads of the ambitions of these superpowers. This is the world of geopolitics. And so in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, there was a blockade of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar II, king of Babylon. You see, the tiny state of Judah, the remnant of Israel, had sided with the losing Egyptians, and there was a price to pay. This is the world of ancient geopolitics. In verse 2, we have another viewpoint. This is God's perspective. We read, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The verb gave as an action of God recurs in verses 2 here, in verse 2, in verse 9, and in verse 17. In other words, the Lord allowed this national disaster to happen. It was of the Lord's doing. The Lord, Adonai, the owner of all things, who gave Judah over into Babylonian hands. The point here is being made is that the Lord is sovereign. He is over all. Things may seem to be out of control, but God is actually in control. And we have to hold on to this tension. Here we have Babylon, the superpower in biblical terms, which represents the city of man, of human achievement, ambition, of greed, of human power and lust and glory, all of that represented by Babylon over and against Jerusalem, which in biblical terms is the city of God. Then in the 6th century BC, as of now, at the outward level, it seems, it appears that Babylon, the city of man, is in the ascendant. Do you notice how verse 2 concludes? Some of the temple vessels were confiscated by the Babylonians, not destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem functioned a bit like the, a central bank, and we know that over 5,000 of these valuable vessels, these gold and silver items, were removed to Babylon. Something valuable was being lost. And it was a loss of sovereignty. We can understand that, particularly in Ireland, because in the last number of decades, we lost our own sovereignty in the financial crash of 2008. This statement here in Daniel is saying, you're powerless, you people, and your God is powerless. But sovereignty, as we know, can be restored. Ireland has restored its sovereignty. It's paid its debt. 
and theologically from God's perspective, the fall of Jerusalem had been prophesied by Isaiah, for example, in the 8th century. And now it had happened. As the Lord had spoken, where is God in this story? What is he doing? Will he restore, redeem the situation? Here as elsewhere in the biblical narrative, God is sovereign. He allows the exile of his people to take place. It's part of his redemptive history. And despite the trauma of it, there will be restoration. Scene two is the longest section in chapter one, verses three to 17. It moves from Jerusalem to Babylon. Among the treasures exiled to Babylon, there was human cargo as well. And the storyteller introduces that to us in verses three and five. Then King Nebuchadnezzar commanded Aspenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, handsome and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to serve the king's palace, and to teach them the letters and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of rich food, which the king ate, and of the wine of which he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. These youths, as the text tells us, were the political elite, the physically impressive, the intellectually astute, the socially poised, in short, young people with status, looks, brains and presence who were to be enrolled in the University College of Babylon in a BA in administration. The curriculum in verse 4 was the literature and language of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. These young people were to be immersed in a new culture and the outcome of the course was to prepare them to be administrators in the expanding Babylonian Empire, to be able to stand in the king's palace, as the text says. This has been the tactic of colonial powers over the sweep of history. I wonder if you've ever heard of William Melville of Schneem in County Kerry, who disappeared from his hometown in the 1860s. And come 1914, when the First World War started, Melville was the head of MI5. M, the King's spymaster, who became M of the James Bond movies. And among the confiscated cadets were four young Jewish adolescents we read of them in verses 6 and 7. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief priest of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called 
Belteshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. These young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were given a new identity. And the subtle hand of the storyteller reveals that their new identity was to signify a deliberate change of ownership. The religious significance of their identity is hidden in one sense. But if we look at the meaning of their names, we'll understand what's going on. Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. Who was called Belteshazzar? Bel, which means in Aramaic, Bel protects his life. And Bel is another name for Marduk, the chief of the deities in Babylon. Hananiah in Hebrew means the Lord shows grace. In his new name, Shadrach. Shadrach is in Aramaic, the command of Aku, which is one of the Sumerian gods, the gods of the Mesopotamians. Mishael in Hebrew means who is what God is. And subtly his name was changed to Mishak, which means in Aramaic, who is what Aku is. Aku, one of the deities of these Babylonian Mesopotamians. And Azariah, in Hebrew means the Lord helps. And Abednego in Aramaic means the servant of Nabu. And Nabu is one of the sons of Marduk, another one of the many Babylonian deities. Do you see what was happening? These young men were being assimilated into Babylonian culture and religion in this scholarship program. They were to be transformed from being followers of the living God. They were monotheists who were now being introduced to the polytheism of Babylon. And in Babylon, there were many thousands of temples dedicated to the many thousands of gods. And in this scholarship program, they were treated to a new luxury. In verse 8, we have read about the king's food, food fit for a king. But as verse 8 says, Daniel refused. He determined, he resolved not to partake and be defiled by this food. We read, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's rich food, or with the wine which he drank. And therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. The strength of this language of defilement is very clear. It's repeated twice in verses 7 and 8. Daniel would not defile himself with the king's food or wine, which to us seems very strange. Why draw a line in the sand over food and drink? Behind this, we have the Jewish food laws. What is allowed and what is not allowed. The term kosher we would use. It's a sign of demarcation of Jewishness. 
what is permissible to eat and what is not permissible. Daniel did not want to contaminate, pollute, defile himself in this regard and to deny his identity as a Jew in Babylon. He was under intense pressure to conform. So Daniel makes a proposal to Ashpenaz, the chief of staff, not to defile himself. We read that in verse 9 in this section. And God gave Daniel favour and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear lest my lord the king who appointed you food and your drink should see that you were in poorer condition than the youths who are of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king. But here's Daniel's proposal. And Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's rich food be observed by you. And according to what you see, deal with your servants. Do you notice the repetition of that verb that we had looked at earlier in section one? And the Lord gave Daniel favour and compassion in this member of staff's sight. What is going on? The sovereign Lord, the one who is in control, guides faithful Daniel and gives him favour, grace, even in Babylon. Ashpenaz, the chief of staff, despite his disposition towards Daniel, told him what was at stake. His own head was on the block if the proposal backfired. And yet Daniel suggests a way out of this dilemma, a 10-day trial on a vegetarian diet over and against the royal diet. And the trial was agreed upon. The sovereign lord was at work in the testimony, and in the testing on the ground. And the outcome, verse 15. When the period was over, there was no question of the winning diet. Vegetables and water won over against rich food and wine. And then the exception for Daniel and his friends. It became the rule in verse 16, so the steward took away their rich food and the wine that they were to drink and give them vegetables instead. And because of this new rule, the postscript in verse 17, the Lord gave. What did the Lord give? As for these four youths, that is Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, God gave them, there's that word again, that verb, God gave them learning and skill in the letters and wisdom and Daniel in all understanding of visions and dreams. The final scene. Exam time in verses 18 and 21. Not surprisingly, given the postscript of verse 17, which I've just read to you, at the end of the course it was assessment time. 
Let's read verses 18 and 19. And at the end time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and chanters that were in his kingdom. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah were top of the class. They were the cream of the crop. The hyperbole, ten times better than all of the wise men in the the kingdom, the superpower of Babylon, it's extraordinary. And as a result, these exceptional students stood before the king. They were ready to rule and have influence in the Babylonian kingdom. And the sovereign Lord honoured faithfulness. And the story closes in verse 21. A little throwaway, but so important. And Daniel Continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Here, the storyteller pushes the fast forward button. Who was Cyrus? He was a Persian king who began to reign in 539 BC. And, and what of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. It fell. He died. To whom? To Cyrus. And the Persians who established a new empire. Do you see it? A mighty Babylon of verses 1 and 2 which swatted this tiny kingdom of Judah into history has fallen. While God's servant Daniel remains standing probably in his 80s. One Bible commentator said that the Hebrew text of verse 21 contains only seven words, seven Hebrew words, packed with dynamite. It is so explosive. The opening chapter of Daniel has been described as the cuisine of resistance. It draws attention to God. We've asked questions like, where is God in this story? What is God doing in history and in the lives of his people? And here in these Jewish youths, the focus of this story in chapter 1 and throughout the prophecy is God. It is theocentric. In all the twists and turns of this story, we should keep our eye on God. What is this story is revealing about God and how he works and what his purposes are. And the God who reveals himself in this chapter is the sovereign Lord. He is in control of events and of his people's lives. Do we recognise this God, this sovereign Lord? It's straightforward when we know the end of the story, but... For Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, they had to live through this. All the twists and the turns and the traumas. And yet to keep their trust in this God. I think we can sense the tension in this. 
maybe we're living through a time of tension when our hold on God and even what he is doing in our lives, in our world, is tenuous, to say the least. This story affirms that the sovereign Lord is to be trusted. Secondly, in recognising the God who holds all things, controls all things, do we recognise the setting we live in? Like Daniel, we live in exile. Always aliens, always strangers. For Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle and Azariah substitute the biblical characters of Joseph, Nehemiah, Esther. Who were not at home in Egypt, in Babylon or in Persia. They were exiles. Since the beginning, God's people have lived east of Eden. We have lived in exile. Our citizenship, Paul says in the New Testament, is in heaven. And it is from there that we're expecting a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3 and verse 20. All the signs, all the trends here in Ireland and in many parts of the Western world is that Christians don't belong, don't fit in. We're at odds. And the temptation is to assimilate, to blend, to become chameleon-like and not to identify ourselves with the living God. Or... The temptation is to withdraw into a bunker. What happened in this first chapter of Daniel is compelling. For these four young men engaged with the culture that they found themselves in and yet did not defile or compromise themselves. They remained distinctive. They were countercultural. Salt and light metaphor that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 5 is very pertinent in the world, but not of the world. And that's a very tricky balancing act, then as now. Thirdly, do we recognize our identity? It's clear who Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah belonged to, even though they lived in exile. Even when they were being assimilated, swallowed up in an alien culture. What is the evidence in our lives that we belong to Christ? What marks us out in terms of that belonging? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah were exceptional. They were role models who altered the perceptions and policies of the Babylonian Empire because they belonged very visibly to God. What of us? Be the best mums, dads, colleagues, students, workers, church members. And lastly, this story helps us to recognise what really matters. What is of value? Where do we draw the line between Christ 
and culture. What is the king's food in our lives? What is feeding us? The answers to these questions are very revealing when we digest them. The opening chapter of Daniel is a story about soul survivors, S-O-U-L survivors. It's a story about worldviews, of values, of identity. These themes will reappear in successive chapters in the book of Daniel. And next time, we're going to look at chapter 2, Disturbing Dreams. <laughs>